This is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. There's something extraordinary happening just outside of Philadelphia. The reasons it's so extraordinary are complicated, and they will require some unpacking. We'll get to that. For now, though, here's what you need to know. More than a dozen communities within the watershed of Wissahickon Creek have joined a coalition that also includes the City of Philadelphia Water Department, several wastewater treatment authorities, Temple University, and a handful of foundations and nonprofits, including PEC, by the way. The goal, to come up with a comprehensive plan to improve the health of the creek, which the EPA designated an impaired stream in 2003. Each municipality involved had to pass legislation, an intergovernmental agreement, and make substantial commitments to the success of the initiative. Well, today's show is the first in a series of stories we'll be bringing you about that partnership. Now, again, with that many stakeholders, the mechanics are fairly complicated. In fact, that's one reason this is such a unique situation. And again, we'll get into that in a future episode in the series. Today, though, we're going to get to know the Wissahickon itself, its history, its surroundings, and the challenges it's facing. If you mention Wissahickon Creek to a Philadelphian, likely their first thought will be of Forbidden Drive in Fairmount Park. There's good reason for that. This is the main point of access to the creek for city dwellers who come here to hike, bike, fish, and enjoy the scenery. Fairmount Park sees, you know, thousands of people every year. People come, you know, this is the largest and first municipal park um, for the city of Philadelphia. Well, and maybe even the U.S., yeah. Lindsay Blanton is a water quality outreach coordinator with the Wissahickon Valley Watershed Association. The city of Philadelphia set aside uh, Fairmount Park I think in 1868 um, because it was an important source of drinking water for the city and even at that point um, because there was so much industrial activity from all the mills up and down the Wissahickon Creek um, they decided to set aside um, this huge portion of land I think it's about 2,000 acres um, to protect for the future of Philadelphia drinking water. And it's water that brings us here just upstream of the intake that supplies a third of Philadelphia's drinking water. The woods we're standing in mark the end of the Wissahickon's journey from its uh, suburban headwaters, a troubled journey through a landscape scarred in places by flooding or drought. Its water is often cloudy with sediment, choked with nutrients or green with algae. Well, Fairmount Park is your only vantage point on the Wissahickon, none of that damage is immediately obvious. In fact, says PEC Executive Vice President Patrick Starr, there's a common misconception among city residents who know the creek primarily as a recreational destination. One of the things that I think is fascinating about this creek as a longtime resident is sort of the mythology that the Wissahickon is sort of this mountain stream. You know, oh. you know, because oh, yeah. the experience yeah. of it from the park that people are familiar with is it's like compared to the rest of the city it's so natural right and then when you actually start to check it out it's not that way at all right and then you learn oh it's actually sewage treatment plant effluent mostly yeah there are actually three water treatment facilities that output to the wissahickon and its tributaries which flow through 16 municipalities before finally arriving in philadelphia Each of those entities plays a role in the health of the creek, and each has a stake in the Wissahickon Clean Water Partnership. That's the multi-municipal, multi-agency, multi-organizational coalition I mentioned earlier. 
Now, to understand what they're up against and the incredible complexity of addressing it, you kind of have to see the watershed in its entirety, all 64 square miles of it. And that's what we're doing today. A team from the Wissahickon Valley Watershed Association is taking me and Patrick on a tour through suburban Montgomery County along the 23-mile route of Wissahickon Creek. We'll start at the beginning, work our way back toward the city, stopping along the way to check out some of the sites where WBWA does monitoring and restoration work. Hydrologist Dennis Pennington is our driver. Yes, in Montgomeryville, along. The contrast between the top and the bottom of the Wissahickon couldn't be more striking. In fact, up here at the source, there's no visible stream at all. It is literally a parking lot. I think we're just about right where the springs used to be. So we're we're parked on top of the headwaters of the Wissahickon. What it used to be, yeah. That is correct. Yep. And the way this area has been developed offers our first clue to the Wissahickon's troubles. We're outside of a shopping mall surrounded by what looks like acres of impermeable surface. Rainwater falling on all of this pavement will sweep up whatever sediment and pollutants are on it. Things like chemicals and road salt and maybe spilled fuel. And once it falls, that water has nowhere to go but into storm drains that drain into the creek by way of a retention basin. The creek itself is underground at this spot. Well, it turns out a lot of the streams that feed into the Wissahickon are enclosed, blowing through narrow passages and culverts that are mostly hidden from view. And in wet weather, that can spell trouble downstream. The velocity and energy of the water, you know, coming through that channel, as soon as it, you know, has a, an opportunity to, to spread out, it just, you know, pours over into the, you know, quote-unquote floodplain that is, you know, this urban center um, and can be really dangerous. It's like water being sucked through a straw and then all of a sudden, you know, it's open and it just bubbles over. A large opening goes into a small opening and just backs up. That's one reason it's important to provide opportunities for rainwater to be gradually absorbed into the soil rather than rushing directly into the creek. Now, there are plenty of ways to do that artificially by building rain gardens, basins, swales, and other green infrastructure features. And the developers have actually already installed some of these kinds of features around the property. You know, this could become one of the kinds of things we look at to try to make improvements in the future. Like those could, may easily be converted to infiltrate water to, you know, and to actually try to replicate that old spring. <laughs> if you could see, you know, soak more water down in, it would help the creek. Back on the road, we see more of the landscape the Wissahickon traverses on its way to Philly. You know, this is a suburban community. This is all developed. I mean, it'll be seamless. You're not going to go through countryside around here. We see examples of commercial and industrial land use here and there. Mostly, though, it's residential. Lots and lots of housing. So I think what's interesting is we're just going by block after block of attached townhouses, single-family homes. We're passing a middle school. So this entire area is is very, very heavily developed. Every now and again, like right now, we're passing an old historic farmhouse, but up here we have a whole series of attached townhomes. So this is this is home to thousands and thousands of Pennsylvanians. And we're right now in what, maybe Montgomery Township or which township would we would we be in? We're in Upper Gwinnett Township at the moment. This is another facet of the perception problem that's complicating efforts to clean up the Wissahickon. 
there's nothing obvious to visually link these housing developments and shopping centers with the surrounding watershed. No real clue to the relationship between the built environment and the stream that flows through it. In some ways, the WVWA has been a victim of its own success. Over the years, they've worked with municipalities and landowners to protect hundreds of acres all along the creek, often by building trails and public green spaces. And while these amenities may give residents a feeling of connection and identification with the creek, that awareness may not extend much further than 100 feet or so from its banks. Again, that's one of the things that's so um, kind of astonishing about the creek. Because of the great work that the WVWA did, the creek corridor itself feels so bucolic and so rural. But the watershed is actually very heavily developed suburban watershed. Uh, So it it leaves you, when you're at the creek, you think, oh, I'm in this pristine rural place, but all of the tributaries coming into it are starting from parking lots and from people's backyards. It might be slippery when you get out on the one side, it's on grass. Our next stop is in one of those public green spaces, sandwiched between a block of residential backyards to the west and a broad expanse of wetland along the creek's eastern bank. This is Parkside Place Park, where the Green Ribbon Trail begins. To the untrained eye, it's pretty, pleasant, but otherwise unremarkable. To a seasoned water scientist, though, there are unmistakable signs of impairment. As you come here, you don't really see too much here. It's a little flat, but the stream has um, a lot of erosion and sedimentation. Whenever you have erosion, of course, you're getting sediment, they're moving down some deposits someplace else. And you'll see high banks here, three or four feet high, where it's been eroded out. Trees have come down because of it. And this is one of the few areas that has open land, too. And all that erosion only compounds the problem of too much water moving too quickly, which in turn creates more erosion. WVWA conservationist John Farrow is the fifth member of our tour group. It's all within the floodplain, but because of the erosion on the banks, the stream is way below, and it can't pop out of a floodplain early enough. Builds up that velocity, and you can just see there's a sharp turn there. You can you can see the straight fall, basically, of the bank, Mm -hmm. about five to six feet in these areas. At the same time, the flat, marshy, and partially undeveloped land surrounding this stretch of creek presents an opportunity. By making it easier for the creek to overflow its banks here, although it's somewhat counterintuitive, you might be able to actually slow the rushing waters and thereby prevent worse flooding downstream. And that's exactly what the Watershed Association, with funding from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, is planning to do. And because of the stormwater that's coming in and all that, um, it does have an opportunity to to fix itself in a time frame that would work for water quality improvements that we Mm want to see. So um, our project is going to reconnect this stream with this vast, almost four plus acres of um, floodplain. So it will be able to capture that stormwater also uh, filter it and hopefully get a little bit of a bank infiltration that can lead to the water being here longer in the dry season. Next, we visit the North Wales Wastewater Treatment Facility, one of three plants whose discharge contributes the bulk of the Wissahickon volume. By the way, if you're struggling with the idea that most of this water is really just treated sewage, here's an experiment you can try. Spend a few hours hanging out by the creek on a weekday morning. 
and watch the water level rise and fall. You'll notice that fluctuation is rather regular, and that's the sewage treatment plants. Or when people go to the bathroom right. in the morning, <laughs> yeah. and you see that flood, all of a sudden the flow comes up, and then when they go to work, it comes back right down. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you can put that mental image aside, the area surrounding the plants actually quite picturesque and seemingly more hospitable to wildlife than some of the other spots we've seen. Under the bridge we're standing on, there's a gaggle of ducks huddled up in the water right where the plant's discharge flows into the creek. The effluent is slightly warmer there than the water in the creek itself. And on this cold winter day, it's clear the ducks are enjoying the temperature difference. Look how cute they are. <laughs> They're little butts wiggling. But in warmer weather, water temperatures can be a problem for living things in the creek, especially in spots with little or no tree cover. What we know is that when you get too much sunlight on water, it warms it up quickly in the summertime. It means it can't hold as much oxygen that the fish and animals need. And it promotes algae growth, which is bad because they also uh, wait. At nighttime, they suck up the oxygen, right? They use oxygen at nighttime which then can lower the oxygen so low that it can kill fish. So trees help to shade and cool the water and are maybe part of the solution to the Wissick and Creek's water quality problems. If we can plant more riparian buffers, we call them, along the creek and shade more of the creek, that actually might help solve the problem with phosphorus. <laughs> That's just one reason why planting trees is an important component of the plan to rehabilitate the creek. In fact, it's difficult to overstate the impact of riparian buffers on stream health. Another benefit of having, um, you know, a nice canopy over a stream corridor is, aside from just controlling the temperature um, and the effects and the algae, you get this great leaf litter in the bottom of the stream. So one of the important uh, parts of habitat, especially for the lowest parts of the food chain, which are the insects that live in the bottom of the stream, you need debris and cover and leaf litter and cobbles and a lot of times in this particular watershed because you get these you know fast flows and it really blows everything out there isn't a lot of cover for the insects in the bottom of the stream so if there's no canopy and you don't get this nice leaf litter there's nothing for them to eat and use as cover and kind of you know you yeah. drop off right so canopy cover provides really important habitat for, for the bottom stream dwellers. But yeah, you get a ton of leaf litter in here. It's, it's good. And snags. Snags are good too? Snags are good too. Um, when there's canopy over the stream, any um, people always think that when a tree falls, it's a bad thing. But again, you know, the, the twigs and branches and even a larger log in the stream provides cover, not just for the insects, but for fish. It's, you know, a good spawning ground. Um, so it is beneficial to have, you know, different kinds of debris in the stream. Even though this area is nicely wooded, there are other clear signs of impairment, like the amount of sediment visible in the water. A lot of times the sediment in our creek is already there, isn't it? It's just yeah, that, like that it's being continually churned up and moved around and moved along. And again, a, a, a healthy creek wouldn't have all this sediment in the channel itself. It would have a, a rock or riffle bottom that would be mm -hmm. stable versus this which is unstable and yeah, every time there's a and high continually being churned up by the high flow yeah. and those sediments kill all of the little critters in the in the in the creek they literally suffocate them 
in in part and i i don't want to get they, too far no, beyond coat, my knowledge they coat the algae and other vegetation that the, the fish and uh, other macroinvertebrates will feed on so it's coated so it's prevented and also it coats them so they yeah. blocks their lungs and so yeah. forth yeah so having these sorts of rubble sediment you know muddy um, sandbars in a creek like this isn't really a healthy condition on the whole. It's, con no, it's really right. deteriorated. It shows that the creek itself is very deteriorated. By this point of the day, we're not even halfway between the source of the Wissahickon and its confluence with the Schuylkill River in Philly. But we've already passed through five different townships, each with its own municipal government, each with its own set of economic and civic priorities. Each community is inextricably linked with the others through the Wissahickon and its tributaries, which form the larger suburban ecosystem they all share. What happens upstream inevitably affects what happens downstream. And yet nothing about the political organization of this landscape seems to reflect that. Which tremendously complicates the solutions to these sorts of water quality problems for a a watershed that doesn't have any idea that it's going from one municipality to the next. <laughs> and in a future episode, we'll explore some of the political and financial complexities that had to be overcome just to establish the Clean Water Partnership in the first place. Suffice to say, the fact that almost every township in the watershed has passed legislation formally signing onto the initiative is pretty extraordinary. But in order to succeed, it'll have to have broad and sustained public buy-in. So... How do you create a shared sense of place that transcends those municipal boundaries? How do you get communities to think of the Wissahickon as a common bond between them? Well, trails are one way. By building a single continuous route along the creek between townships, you provide opportunities for hikers and bikers to experience it as a cohesive whole. Another way is to remind people of the creek's historic role in making the area what it is today. Back in the 18th and 19th centuries, before it became mostly residential, this valley was bustling with economic activity, including farming, mining, timbering, and manufacturing. Now, all of these industries once relied on the Wissahickon for mechanical energy, harnessing its waters to power dozens of mills that once lined its banks. Most of those old mills are long gone, but one, the Evans-Mumbauer Mill in North Wales, is still standing, thanks in part to the Wissahickon Valley Watershed Association. I believe the first building was built in the 1700s and it changed hands many times. There was a fire. This one, I think the, the stone says 1835. Um, so that might have been the date that, you know, there was a rebuild or a change of hands. And that's the Miller's house over there. WVWA acquired the property and began restoring it in the 1980s. Today it's open to the public and a popular destination for school field trips. This is the only mill remaining in the watershed that is active. So the water wheel still works and we have thousands of kids, you know, come here over the course of the year from different school districts in the area and kind of learn about, you know, simple machines and how water power works and how, you know, the area used to supply, you know, the whole process all kinds of grain and, you know, processing wool and timber. Um, and just kind of the historical aspect of, of what the Wissahickon used to provide um, for residents. And uh, they had, we restored this. We spent a lot of money. We had it restored to the original um, gears and everything else. So all the gears in here are wood. They took trees. And this guy actually cut this carpenter as a, a, a restoration carpenter. I'm going to call him. And he 
cut down trees and carved from the trees the parts for this. And you see these amazing wooden wheels and it's just it's yeah. just really fantastic to see. And the kids get really mesmerized by it. Yeah, you just see hundreds of gallons of water, you know, pouring over this wheel. So the kids get to see the wheel turning, the paddle turning, and then you see it doing the other gears and all the gears are moving and everything else, and it's really kind of neat. We stopped for a bite to eat in Ambler, one of the area's older towns, once known as the asbestos capital of the world. The legacy of asbestos manufacturing is visible everywhere today, from the stately turn-of-the-century homes marking its economic heyday, to the decay that later set in after the industry went bust, to the Superfund site where you can still see a 25-foot pile of capped asbestos waste. One thing we don't see in Ambler is the Wissahickon Creek. Its main stem lies outside the borough's boundaries. Even the local tributary is largely invisible paved over or diverted into narrow channels for the most part. And that doesn't mean Ambler isn't affected by conditions elsewhere in the watershed. On the contrary, the downtown area is frequently troubled by flooding. It's Tannery Run, that's one of the streams that, that uh, tributaries of the Wissahickon. comes down, going from right, up at Dublin Township. It's uh, going underneath the town of uh, Ambler through a series of tunnels and uh, opens up here behind the Denny Electric store and uh, then it travels down to the old asbestos reservoir, which is now a wildlife refuge area. But it floods here a lot. You can see the channels, it's not very big. Now, once upon a time, that channel may have been big enough to accommodate the volume, but because of subsequent development upstream, more rooftops and parking lots, sometimes there's more runoff than that narrow channel can handle. It comes up over, comes up into here, He's out on the street and comes down. Um, you can have a couple of feet of water over here. With our lunch break over, we continue downstream, stopping to check out a few more of the sites that the Watershed Association monitors. The data collection is comprehensive and it is a year-round job. We go out um, four times a year. We go out in February, May, August, and November. And essentially what we do at those, at those points, we have 13 sites all around the watershed and we collect water quality samples that are then sent to a lab. So we look for thing, we look at the you know, nitrate and phosphate, orthophosphate levels. We're looking at dissolved oxygen, suspended solids, um, we have some handheld probes that look at conductivity and pH. Um, yep, dissolved oxygen. In addition to their own sampling and testing, WVWA also gets data from a small army of volunteer observers through its Creek Watch program. We meet two Creek Watchers at Morris Arboretum just outside Philadelphia city limits. Jeff Clark has been a Creek Watcher since the program began more than two years ago. I had just retired from teaching. I taught um, science in the middle school and have always, ever since I was a kid, loved to play in creeks. Jeff's wife, Margo, now accompanies him on monthly visits to the Arboretum where they take samples, photographs, and notes on what they see along a approximately one-mile stretch of creek. It's a neat site. You've got the smooth, you know, the flat water up here and then the rushing water here and another pool yeah. down here. So we've had some good wildlife sightings. Um, Wood ducks? 
Wood ducks, herons, mm -hmm. kingfishers. Bittern. Um, yeah, mm. bittern. Mm -hmm. um, we saw a uh, woodchuck. I've never seen. We thought it was a beaver, swimming. but we've been told there's no beaver runner swimming across the creek. It's not all flora and fauna. The Clarks have also seen their share of litter and debris, including stray golf balls from a nearby country club, and on one occasion, an alarming number of dead fish. Yeah, because that, that was startling. That yeah, was these 16 inch fish. First, we saw mm -hmm. one just floating right down. And, and there were so many, it was really startling. Just like 21 of them in the course of probably 45 minutes while oh, we were yeah. here. DEP investigators concluded the fish were killed by an excess of fertilizer in runoff from a nearby property during a rainstorm. Another example of the often unpredictable impacts that can occur when there are rapid changes in the volume and flow rate of water in the creek. Well, even with extensive monitoring, there's no good way to know how often these kinds of fish kills may be occurring. If you two hadn't been here to see this one, how likely is it that somebody else would have noticed and reported it? I, I think it's probably they, they an were, amazing they coincidence. I mean, you know, yeah. we're here for an hour and a half every month, maybe yeah. a little bit longer than that. We just happened to be there. We knew there had been a little bit of rain um, where we live. Didn't realize, I guess, there had been more rain upstream because yeah. that's what struck us as the fish were coming down. The level, the, the water began to get more cloudy. The level began to go up and these fish just came down, sort of sluicing down. But um, I, mean, I don't know if anybody, you know, further downstream, somebody down there might have noticed, but yeah. it was just, it was an extraordinary choice I mean, for us. It makes you wonder, you know, there before there were creek watchers even, and even if it were sure. just, you know, a fisherman, you know, sitting on the creek watching it go by, you wonder how many either go unobserved or right. unreported. Right. right. You just yeah. don't know. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that's one of the ironies of the whole situation with the Wissahickon. People around here are familiar with the creek, are interested in the creek, maybe even have strong feelings about the creek. But despite all that, Jeff says there's really not much awareness about its actual condition. I mean, when I tell people what I've been doing since I retired, I say, well, I'm also you know, volunteering with the Watershed Association mm -hmm. on a creek watch. And they go, what's that? You mm -hmm. know, and I tell them what I do. And then their next question is, so how's the creek? Everybody knows about the creek around mm -hmm. here. How's the creek doing? Would you say that most of them were surprised when you told them it's not so good? Yes, I would say they're surprised. That. Yeah, yeah, they're surprised. When we tell people about this, they go, "Oh, so how's the stream?" You know, they want to know right away. What's what's the situation with the stream? Well, our perspective is larger than just the site here. Mm -hmm. But based on the site here, we wouldn't we wouldn't say you know there's a serious issues with this stream. But when you think of the fact that trout can't live in this stream all year round, and some of the other stressors. Um, with storm water and, and sedimentation and, and the bacteria and the bacteria and so forth and it's yeah it's a stream that's um, yeah that has some has some issues from here the creek takes us back to where we started Philadelphia's Fairmount Park this is the closest we've been to the city proper and yet paradoxically it's also the least developed most scenic and natural looking piece of land we've seen all day Unlike many of its upstream sections, the valley here is heavily wooded, lined with the birch, poplar, and sycamore trees that gave the Wissahickon its name. Wissahickon means, in the Lenape language of the Indians, um, it means stream of many colors, because during the fall especially, you had all these different types of trees, you had all these colors. So that's what my understanding is. It's been appealing for millennia to humans. Still, that aesthetic appeal is a little bit misleading. The area that's now Fairmount Park didn't always look like this. It's really hard to 
imagine when you're in the Wissahickon Valley is that this forest is roughly 150 years old. There are images, paintings from the early 19th century showing these hills completely cleared, grazed cattle on them. And in this creek valley, there were literally factories all along the creek. When the city of Philadelphia set aside this land for the sake of clean drinking water nearly 150 years ago, they ended up creating a recreational space that would be treasured by generations of Philadelphians, a space that would become the first federally designated national natural landmark in Pennsylvania. And there's a lesson in that. While it may not be possible to restore the entire Wissahickon Creek to the way it was 300 years ago, there are plenty of opportunities to make improvements. And in doing so, communities situated within the watershed have a chance to forge a new relationship between the land and its residents. They also have a chance to draw new residents and visitors who place a high value on amenities like parks and trails, especially when those can serve as a link to the city and to other locations within the larger metro area. There's a desire for recreational use of this creek. There are literally millions of people who live within an hour's drive of this creek. They want to use it and it's beautiful. And it, it, it's very visually appealing. It's beautiful through the city park. It's beautiful through the private preserves of the Wissahickon Valley Watershed Association. People want access to this creek. That's our introduction to the Wissahickon Creek and the surrounding watershed. The first part in a series we'll be bringing out over the course of this year, looking at that wide-reaching effort to clean up the Wissahickon. That is this week's episode, though. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies on our website. It's at peckpa.org. There you can find more information on uh, all of the work that the Pennsylvania Environmental Council is doing across this commonwealth. Pennsylvania Legacies, also available, by the way, as a free subscription through the iTunes store. You can also subscribe on SoundCloud or uh, anywhere else you can find podcasts. Really grateful for your subscription, and we also appreciate ratings and reviews wherever you get the show. You can get in touch with your feedback and your questions about Pennsylvania Legacies. We'd love to hear from you by email at legacies at peckpa.org. Again, that's legacies, L-E-G-A-C-I-E-S, at peckpa.org. I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening.